Hello and welcome to season five of the Writer's Mindset podcast with me, Ellie Betts. Christina is still hiding away working on The Witcher's Sacrifice, but she is almost finished. So I might consider letting her out of the dungeon soon. She's also been working on our Patreon exclusive series, Healthy Habits. We're here to create a community of authors who persevere, are their most productive selves and publish at a speed that they are comfortable with. This week, Christina connected with Gail Carriger to talk about the heroine's journey. Gail Carriger has multiple New York Times bestsellers and over a million of books in print in dozens of different languages. She writes comedies of manners mixed with urban fantasy and sexy queer joy as G.L. Carriger. She's best known for the Parasol Protectorate and Finishing School series. She was once an archaeologist and is fond of shoes, octopuses and teeth. I do want to say a big thank you to all of our patrons for your support. We couldn't do this without you. As a patron, you get early access to all of our episodes, bonus content, and our undying gratitude for supporting all the work that goes into creating these episodes to inspire and motivate you. And as I mentioned, Christina has been working on the patron exclusive series called Healthy Habits. We've had some great feedback so far. It's definitely worth checking out. Hello, I'm just popping in to let you know that there is a new episode of Healthy Habits out now. In the first episode, we covered the basics. Then we moved on to neuroplasticity, aka how to reprogram your brain. In the latest episode, it's all about the types of movement to boost your brain. Because if you're not moving, you're not getting enough blood flowing around your body and your neurons can't fire properly, which means it's not just your muscles that will decline, it's your brain power. We've got loads more episodes coming up covering things like the foods that work magic on your brain, probiotics, and even the importance of community. The first episode is out now for everyone to check out, and I will include a link to that below. If you'd like to join us for the rest of the series, you can for just £3 a month. Visit patreon.com forward slash writers mindset to start building healthier habits into your life today. Hmm. She has been doing a lot of hard work. I suppose a short break from the dungeon is allowed. If you want to find out more, visit patreon.com forward slash writers mindset. With me today is Gail Carragher. Welcome to the Writers Mindset. Hello. Thank you very much for having me. I'm excited. So just for anyone who hasn't heard of you before, can you just give us a little bit of background about who you are and what you do, please? Uh, Right. My name is Gail Carragher and I write lots of stuff. I've been doing it for about a dozen years now. And what do I do? I write science fiction, fantasy, a lot of, I made my name in steampunk in particular, uh, young adult romance, basically commercial genre fiction is my ballywick. And then I have one nonfiction book, which is The Heroine's Journey, which is this one. I have to say, I read The Heroine's Journey recently and absolutely loved it. It resonated with me on so many levels. Not only is it like a great writing style that's just fun to read, but also you've got how it helps writers and how it applies from more, more of a critical standpoint, just from people who like enjoy pop culture as well. So like my brain was firing from so many different angles. It was great. I've been telling all my friends they need to read it. <laughs> oh, that makes me feel so. That's exactly why I wrote it. I just 
Yeah, that makes me feel so, so good. Yeah, I, I decided I, I have resisted. I come out of academia, so I have resisted writing nonfiction for a really long time. But I kept going to events and talking about the heroine's journey like I was talking about the hero's journey and expecting everybody to understand what I was talking about. And I realized slowly but surely that unlike me, a lot of people weren't taught this particular narrative in school. And so I was like, I guess I have to write a book. <laughs> so. Yeah, I have an MA and a BA in creative writing and I wasn't taught the heroine's journey, but I also wasn't taught the hero's journey that oh, okay. I can remember. I was taught more <laughs> stuff like the three-act structure and not mm. the hero side of things. So I guess it's kind of a little bit better, sort of. Were, were you taught four-act, Kitsotensketsu or any of the Asian narratives? I'll be structure? honest. Didn't pay a lot of attention to the plotting <laughs> lessons. And then it shot me in the foot when I actually started writing my own books. So can't say for definite, just very vividly remember a three-act structure lesson during screenwriting. That's literally well, all I remember. Honestly, a lot of us pick up these narrative chassis sort of organically just from reading this or like paying attention to the way media is presented or what have you. I mean, I wrote The Heroine's Journey and I, can, I can't tell you how many people are like, oh, I just... Reading your book made me realize that this is what I write more than that there was this thing I didn't know existed. I always knew it existed. I just didn't have the vocabulary to kind of talk about it and identify it. And that's, you know, another reason I wrote it as I was like, you got to you got to kind of I feel like I'm an organized person, but I feel like if you kind of have a better idea of what you're writing from a very base core kind of chassis framework level, then when you get into trouble as a writer, you understand, you know, how to get yourself out of it. But also as a consumer of these sorts of narratives, you understand why you like them, which I always want to know why I like the things I like, you know? Yeah, so. 100%. Like, since I started writing fantasy a couple of years ago, I found having a deeper understanding of plot is really what stopped me from getting so incredibly stuck that I stop. Because I really enjoy writing fantasy, but it's so much harder. I did quit writing fantasy for 10 years because I hated stuff like the world building and the intense oh. plotting involved but now my brain really likes that challenge and like you say because I understand the plotting on a deeper level and the fact that my characters go through a heroine's journey it does make life a lot easier and a lot less stressful I find well that's great that's yeah that's exactly that's yeah that, that's kind of it I mean I think some of us as writers sort of organically just spit it back out really comfortably and maybe don't need this kind of thing because it just comes really naturally. Or I feel like there are certainly some subgenres of, of commercial genre fiction in particular that like if you've kind of absorbed it, cozy mysteries or something like that, then you just spit it right back out again really easily. But then there are some that are sort of a little bit more complex or perhaps bridge or can be many different versions of these different kinds of narratives um, and for those, like if you have the toolkit, it's just it's just an extra toolkit, you know, that you can you can use. Hundred percent. So we're getting a bit ahead of ourselves. Sure for anyone who has it, we're ever excited. We can't help it. Our <laughs> listeners will understand. For anyone who hasn't heard of the heroine's journey, can you just explain how it differs from the hero's journey, and also what that words, and also why is it important to know the difference between the two? All right. So. Uh, most people are familiar with the hero's journey because of Joseph Campbell. And also there's, you know, kind of memes and images of it out there. And generally speaking, we sort of have the hero's journey, if not taught to us, at least eventually you kind of pick it up or encounter it. Just, um, you know, if you're a sci-fi writer within the convention circuit or something like that. Um, and so I talk about the hero's journey first, because most of the time it's the one people have. Uh, access to and the language to talk about. Essentially, it's basically this idea that um, a hero has a quest, 
um, has these sort of patterns of withdrawal and return where he goes into a liminal space and I'm using pronouns uh, casually. So I'll get to that in a second. <laughs> but um, so he crosses a threshold, he retrieves a boon, he takes it back. He's presented with an award, et cetera, et cetera. Um, you can just Google and take a look of it at any image of the hero's journey out there. And it will give you the sort of circular layout of this journey. Um, you'll be very familiar with the hero's journey because you will have encountered it in like most sort of suspense thrillers, like all the 007 movies, for example, would be hero's journeys, that kind of thing. So there's these sort of quests for autonomy in a way, the hero's journey, the hero always ends up kind of going at it alone. It's usually him against the universe. He has to prove himself, either to himself or to others, um, et cetera, et cetera. So it has all of these um, also sort of messages and narrative tropes and archetypes that are associated with it. And then there's the heroine's journey. So the first and most important thing to know is that these narratives are referred to using gendered language, but they aren't gendered. So a female or non-binary person can be a hero. And the example that I often use is the recent Wonder Woman movie. She is a very classic hero. If you've seen that movie, she undertakes all of the steps and beats of a heroic narrative. Um, and similarly, heroines can be male identified or non-binary individuals as well. So um, the actual biological sex of the main character does not make a difference in which kind of narrative we're on when we're talking about these. So I just want to make that kind of clear. Um, it's just that the language we have to refer to these two narratives was kind of dictated by Campbell back in the 60s and 70s. And so that's just how it's fallen out at this juncture. So a heroine's journey is it's not necessarily the opposite, um, but what the heroine wants and the goals that she sets for herself are just completely different from the hero. And there's no like a priori value as to one journey being better or worse than the other one. It's just as readers and as writers, we often gravitate to one instead of the other, especially in the Western world. So uh, a heroine's journey is generally speaking, she has something that is taken from her and it's usually a family network or emotional tie or bond of some kind. So um, the example that I use often is Persephone being taken from Demeter. So then Demeter is started on a heroine's journey because she is questing for her daughter. And that's that's kind of what the heroine is usually doing. The heroine is usually questing for some kind of reunion or unity or cohesion of some kind. She's looking to put something back together again that was broken or that or she's looking to find something that was taken. Um, and her journey is, is similar in that she has a descent. She, has a, she crosses a threshold. She disguises herself usually. And then she has all of these patterns, much like the hero does. Um, but her goal and strength is almost always in accessing information and communicating with people. So a heroine on her journey is always seeking to talk to people, to get in contact with people, to put a group together, to put a group quest together. Um, I like to say that heroines make very good generals. They're usually really good at identifying the strengths and weaknesses in others and activating them. Heroines are very good at asking for help. And that's not a weakness, it's strength because of this personality quality where they're really good at, at knowing what's needed to accomplish things together. And the end of the heroine's journey is almost always a compromise of some kind that is for the good, uh, for the greater good, for the great good of mankind. In the case of like the ancient Greek myths, uh, Demeter's compromise results in the seasons, which allow for the harvest, et cetera. Um, and so that's kind of sort of the core of these, these two narratives. How did you discover the heroine's journey and become and start like writing about it and sharing it with people? So I was an uh, archaeologist in my previous life before I became a full-time author. 
Um, and as part of undergraduate degrees in archaeology, it's often an interdisciplinary major in the United States because it's part of the anthropology department rather than the art history department or the antiquities department as it is in the UK. Um, and so here we uh, form the archaeology degree by taking classes in lots of different departments usually. So, you know, you have to take sedimentary in the geology department. Um, and I actually had a classical focus when I was an undergraduate, so I took a lot of classics classes in general. And, you know, because I'm a ceramicist that ended up being my advanced degree, I'm interested in the sort of motifs and things that are explored on ceramics. And a lot of the Greek myths in particular end up on the exterior of pottery, red figure and black figure wares in particular. And so I just gravitated towards the classics. I've always been a storyteller as well. So I really like the narrative. I really like, like if you study the Greek classics, how it gives you a great understanding of like, you know, the painters of the Renaissance era and stuff like that. So I just like the, the underpinning that a knowledge of, of Mediterranean source mythos like kind of gives us. And it just became also extremely useful as a writer <laughs> later on in life. But as part of that, um, I've always also been interested in representations of gender and how gender is throughout history um, and sexual identity and things like that. So I just sort of naturally kind of focused on that as part of my um, minor in, in classics, which was part of my major <laughs> as an undergraduate. Um, and so I ended up taking all of these courses on kind of gender and ancient Greek and ancient Roman mythology in particular. Um, and that kind of led me down this path. Wow. I, you know, went on to work in like an Egyptian museum. And then I got interested <laughs> in sort of the ISIS myth and all that sort of stuff. So, oh my God. Sorry. Yeah. I love ancient Egypt. So like when, when I yeah. read your example in it, I was like, oh my God. ISIS is my favorite. You can read. So one of the things I did for the book is I retold three, three of my, the, for, for me, were sort of the germane and core mythos is for understanding the heroine's journey. And that's the Demeter myth from ancient Greece and, and Rome. Um, and the Inanna or the Ishtar myth from Assyria and then or, uh, Libya, et cetera. Um, and then the Isis myth from ancient Egypt. And I love Isis and that myth so much. You can kind of tell on the page because again, so it's so fantastically delightful, like her quest and everything. Um, it's such a, it's such a heroine's journey. I mean, her, in her case, her lover is literally divided into 13 or 28 parts. And then she has to go put him physically back together again. I mean, like you couldn't get a more heroine's for those of you who are not watching this, I am gesticulating with my hands wildly because it makes me so excited it's a great myth um, something you mention in the book is that isis's story is often focused on her husband even though she's the one who goes on the journey right yeah so why do you think that is when she's the one who's the active participant i know he's the one in like <laughs> a dozen pieces or more uh, right. Yeah. He's dead the whole time, pretty much. Uh, yeah. Interesting enough, uh, like Inanna and Desmodo, like it's the same thing in the Ishtar myth. Like he's kind of, well, I mean, she spends time as a piece of meat on a hook. Uh, so does he, uh, <laughs> et cetera, you know, uh, as you do. Um, but I just think, I mean, I think part of the concentration uh, in the Isis myth, and this is not a defense, I mean, patriarchal, patriarchal intent, patriarchal interpretations, patriarchal translations, you know, like the first translation of that we have access to in English language was Budge. And obviously he is a, as a, as an archeologist, he is a person of his time when he is talking about the ISIS myth, he cannot escape it. Um, and so, you know, you have to kind of look at the translations with a little bit of a grain of salt when you're, when you're reading these as well. But I think in general, the zeitgeist focus on the sort of 
more violet, more masculine side of these journeys is that that has become the thing that in the Western world in particular, we associate with excitement and entertainment is, you know, is sort of Horace's end of Isis's journey in a way where he goes off and, you know, defeats the enemy with the with weaponry and claims the throne, you know, and that's because his mom has like told him to go do that. And that's because she delegated because <laughs> she's a heroine. She's like, yeah, that's not my part. Like, I don't feel like doing that. I got to invent mummification with my friend Anubis here. Uh, we got things to do. <laughs> um, you go do the killing and whatever. Uh, <laughs> not important. <laughs> or do the dethroning, I guess. Uh, Set doesn't really die. But anyway, it, it, it's, yeah, it, it is, you know, kind of what, and I talk about this as well in the book, like there's a kind of a little bit of a counseling session I do, because if you are a custodian of these narratives, if what you gravitate towards is the heroine's journey, you often get kind of devalued and disenfranchised and stuff like that as writers, because the journeys are about getting along and being cohesive and compromising and all of these things that are almost a dirty words in modern lexicon, especially in, the, in America. Um, and, and that, you know, that that can be an uphill battle from kind of just a professional perspective and having to like sort of accept that what I write are things where people end up happy and people end up talking to each other and it all comes out okay, you know? And that doesn't uh, like cheapen the narrative or devalue it. It makes it very comforting for people to read. Uh, but for but over many, many years, and it's partly the fault of the Victorians, uh, Victorian critics in particular, we've we've just learned to sort of disenfranchise these narratives and kind of poo-poo them and look down on them uh, for all the value that they bring and the comfort that they that they engender when people read them which is sad but a consequence of in part you know kind of a patriarchal I wouldn't say agenda it's just kind of what's happened to the world in general reclaiming is really important I think yeah I totally agree why do you say it's the Victorians fault <laughs> the whole section in here that has to do with the basically what amounts to the first pulp mo movement. So we're used to talking about kind of commercial genre fiction in, in, in the guise of the, the pulp fictions of the, the 1950s, which were mostly sci-fi, but also mysteries um, and then fantasy as well. And um, all of those, which I call the commercial genre fictions. So romance, science fiction, fantasy, suspense, thrillers, mystery, crime thrillers, horror, um, adventure stories, all of these the genres that people love, that people tend to really read for entertainment, um, that have in each in their own way had hard fought battles for respectability, for lack of another word, for recognition in general from the literary community. So those genres all kind of have their origin in the Gothics, which were pre-Victorian, but really had a heyday in the Victorian era. And that has to do with the rise of industrialization and the fact that um, literacy in women rose. And so women started reading more. They had more leisure time to do so, especially in the middle classes. And then they started to be catered to by other female authors. And so you had the rise of uh, basically um, the Yellowbacks and the Penny Dreadfuls, which were sort of at the time regarded as sensationalist entertainment for, you know, for the lower orders, you know, for the, for the, female, for the female gaze, essentially. And very, very frowned upon and disregarded, uh, partly because like the pulps, which is where the name pulp comes from, they were printed on cheaper materials using this new fangled high production printing presses that had also been invented or were, were being perfected as part of industrialization. 
And so you get an entire genre that essentially is written for and by and presented to women, which at the time were very critically dismissed by the male critics at the time um, as suitable only to the ladies um, and therefore unimportant. And that, that association, sort of guilty by association, has colored all of the genres that come from those, which is basically commercials on genre fiction as we have it today, because, you know, everything kind of owes a little bit of its core archetypes and tropes in particular to, to the gothics. And that's just a battle that we still fight on many, many levels. And I feel like some genres are kind of getting a little bit more respectability as they climb their way up. Others like romance are still pretty disregarded. Um, and that, to a certain extent, kind of all comes from this whole thing that happened during the Victorian era. Yeah, I always remember when I went to a wedding and as part of an experiment, instead of telling someone I wrote something really deep and meaningful, I introduced it as celebrity romance and he immediately laughed at this guy I was talking to. This was someone who never finished anything. And at this point, I'd published five books, but he laughed at me and he stopped laughing when I told him that I had a lot of readers who actually cared about my characters and I was making money from what I was doing. Because, you know, this was someone who couldn't even finish their working progress laughing at me for writing about people falling in love, which is literally what everyone wants. Yeah. And like, and it's a really interesting thing to sort of chart back and be like, well, Shakespeare mostly writes about people falling in love. And Jane Austen basically wrote the six six of the main romance tropes. And it's just like after a very long time, they finally, or Dickens writes about people falling in and out of love. And it just takes a very long time. Even the great, like any British Roman has like a love thread in it, right? And just after a very long time, finally they become acceptable somehow. Um, but yeah, and before anybody out there is thinking, yes, but romances are badly written or blah, 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 blah. I defy you. Like there, every genre has badly written books in it. Like that's not, that's not a reason to dismiss an entire genre. 100%. Um, like I don't get this whole like dismissing an entire genre or like when people say all oh, indie books are badly written. It's so like reductive. Because have you read every single book in that genre? Have you read exactly. every single author? Like- well, and that's but that's another reason to kind of know that like what you're responding to as a reader or a writer for that matter, but what you're responding to as a reader most of the time is not necessarily how the book is written. I mean, it it might be if you're somebody who specifically reads for language and linguistic manipulation, if you're particularly into what I would call the literary fic or the literati to a certain extent. Um, But if you're somebody who reads for entertainment primarily, then what you're responding to is how that author fits into the genre expectations that you have, which tropes and archetypes you enjoy. Because if you're reading commercial genre fiction, they all have tropes and archetypes. It's not just romance that's full of tropes. I know it's a dirty word. Um, And so, yeah, I mean, I think it behooves you to try to understand why you like a thing, especially if you're going to write that thing. (laughs) Um, but, but also like why you're dismissive of certain things. Like one of the things that made me write this book is what I realized is I really don't like the hero's journey as a reader. Like, I just don't like some of its messaging. I don't like the way they, these books often end, which is usually with pathos and sort of sadness or what I would call ambiguous endings. So, you know, I gravitate to the heroine's journey and I was like, well, why is that? What is it I'm getting from these books? What is it that readers want from these books? And, you know, that kind of also sparked me trying to investigate it a little bit more. Um, But yeah, I mean, this conversation, if you admit to writing romance, 
Uh, and I dare you, even if you don't write romance, to try like mustering up the courage because it'll take a lot of courage to try doing it at like a cocktail party or whatever. Yeah, the flack you still get from laymen is pretty is pretty severe. It's funny though because I do almost feel like people take me more seriously as an author now when I say I write ghost stories, and that's mm. horrible. And just saying ghost stories compared to fantasy, even people receive it differently, mm. even though they're basically the same. Yeah. And and honestly, what you can do if if you are scared of, of the seriousness of this, like of being taken seriously or whatever, um, which is also fair, you know, like owning owning your own thing is, is difficult many times is to come up with the minor, the more subgenre that you write um, <laughs> that you can then specify so that people are more likely to be confused than dismissive. Um, and then you can kind of trot out, oh, there's romantic elements like later on, because, you know, what book in the history of books doesn't have at least some romantic elements? Yeah. Why do you think romance in particular, people still wrinkle their nose at compared to other genres like sci-fi or fantasy? Well, I have a whole argument about this in, in the book again, but like in a very simple terms, it's just 200 years of misogyny. Like just, <laughs> that's a terribly dismissive word to use. <laughs> it is 200 years of misogyny. It's just that that narrative is particularly associated with female readership and therefore easier to dismiss just because of that for really no other reason. Uh, I mean, there are other things involved, like of all the books that are designed to provide a fantastical form of comfort. And I mean, a fantasy as in it's a fantastical kind of romance. It is a kind of romance that frankly doesn't really exist. You know, that's what romance novels do more than anything else. And I don't know, it's, it's like dismissing um, you know, a rom-com movie or, or even dismissing like a Marvel movie because their primary goal is just to provide escapism and entertainment. And there's something like a priori more worthy about a movie that depresses you or that speaks to harder themes when, you know, most of us are already dealing with this depression and harder themes in real life. And and what we do want from our entertainment is escapism. I think escapism itself has kind of become a bit of a dirty word. And sort of, again, those of us who write escapist, like fantasy, sci-fi, literally things that take us away from reality, um, kind of have to work to reclaim it. And that's the only way we can. Yeah, I t- I've always kind of seen my fiction, regardless of like, what genre is marketed under as a type of fantasy like these celebrities you're never going to meet the equivalent in real life but people like the idea of falling in love with someone rich and famous absolutely know? yeah the billionaire romance or the ceo yeah. romance you know had it's a, a huge it's a huge bubble still it had a very yeah. huge bubble but like number one this idea it's absolutely fantastical the idea that someone is going to like, come into your ordinary everyday life and lift you up and transport you away to another to another world of you know delights <laughs> it's like a portal fantasy in a yeah. way it's just a portal to the rich and famous <laughs> yeah but i think that's why my first series really resonated with people because it was two ordinary friends and one falls in love with a film star and one falls in love with a stunt performer and so they're introduced to the same world but they have very different experiences and because of this they become friends with all these other people and it allows them to do things that were much more outside of their comfort zone and if you come from that small town mentality even just having people who in encourage you to be outside of your comfort zone and believe you can be more it's highly unusual yeah there's this, this idea that 
you can make the ordinary extraordinary simply by identifying traits within that person that are devalued in the ordinary life. And that I, you know, I have a I have theories about, um, you know, more theories than are in everyone's <laughs> journey about like how these kinds of things work in terms of what really appeals to readers. But there's definitely a core underpinning. And, I, you know, this is the idea of fate or pro- the prophecy, which is very ancient in terms of human telling. But this idea that an ordinary person is special or can become special in the case of a romance through the act of love and transformation in the case of, say, a crime thriller through the act of training in, you know, a particular set of skills, right? Um, it, it, in a mystery through the act of cultivating your eyes so you're very observant etc cetera, etc cetera. so this is this idea that that the what makes the ordinary special becomes a story is very much like endemic i think to the human psyche in many many ways yeah that's definitely what i've noticed from reader comments as well is that they resonate with actually the one who comes from the worst background <laughs> Because she's tired in a dead-end marriage, she's got a dead-end job, and she wants out, but she doesn't know how to get out. And I think that just resonates with people much more than the person, although the other character does resonate with people a lot, but she's a lot more headstrong, and she quits her job because she hates her boss. Like, not everyone does that, but people kind of fantasize about doing that. I fantasize about that when I wrote it. Yeah. Yeah, there's people want to see themselves or an idealized possibility of what themselves could become in what they're reading, Um, at least... I've always theorized that, but themselves as in, like you said, doing the things that they wouldn't ordinarily do, getting out of the life in ways that they don't really have access to, et cetera, et cetera. Um, You know, that's one reason for fiction and fantasies to like put an eye towards diversification in particular is because people want to see more. And that's honestly where the strength of indie has become is like there used to be in trad and I I don't want to slam trad. I'm hybrid. So I do both, but Tread has had gatekeepers for a very, very long time that through conscious or unconscious effort have kept a certain uh, status of individual as the main player in a lot of these narratives. And I'm queer. And so queerness was something I paid attention to really closely. And watching the rise of queer romances since indie came on the scene has been one of the greatest joys of my life is to watch like all of us who never got happy endings because there were just too many gatekeepers in the romance community, just like everywhere else, um, finally get happy endings. But but it did take indie. It took indie to sort of serve niche markets to not to get businessy, but there it is. Um, and that's where I get very excited about <laughs> about like the indie world in particular is that we get to see ourselves, whatever form of that self is, we want to see represented more and more on the page in ways that didn't happen in the past, um, partly because of gatekeeping, but also because of market shares in, um, in terms of like the, the gatekeepers didn't think these narratives would sell no matter how well-written they felt they were, but they do sell. They just, just on smaller scales that are enough for indie authors to make it. Yeah. And also fantastic. Publishers just don't want to take risks because they can't afford to. That's true. Yeah, exactly. Uh, That's so true. And that's, I mean, I went indie partly because I wanted to take more risks. And I was like, well, and one of the risks I wanted to take is I've always been scared of writing romance, particularly higher heat romance with more explicit sex scenes. And I was like, and my publisher is a sci-fi fantasy publisher. They're not going to want that anyway. 
So I was like, but this is, I can now, right? This is my opportunity. India afforded me the opportunity to be like, let's see if I can do that. Like if, if I can write that. And you know, the worst that happens is it doesn't sell and I'll write something else. <laughs> yeah, it gives you a lot more creative freedom without worrying about, I guess, other people's judgment until later in the process, maybe? Yeah, that's true. Yeah. D- don't, you know, don't get too slap happy, right? Like <laughs> they're, they're, someone's going to call you to task no matter what. Mm-hmm. At some point in this process, it's just with traditional, like that happens much earlier on in the process. And, and now, you know, a reviewer, if they dislike you or they see themselves in your stuff, but not represented in the way they like, or they don't see the representation that they particularly wanted, um, they're going to get mad at you. But that's, you know, that's a consequence of being a writer, I think, in general. Oh, yeah, definitely. Yeah, I've had most people say they love that my um, fantasy book is written from mother and daughter point of view. It's kind of like Gilmore Girls, but with ghosts. Oh, that's but, great. <laughs> thank you. But I did have someone leave a review saying that it seemed like I was confused about which audience I was writing for. So <laughs> you can't please everyone. It's absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, that's that's that is I mean, I, if I have one, I mean, we're, we're getting off topic a little bit here. But if I have one lesson to teach any like newer authors, it is like you absolutely cannot satisfy everybody. And that's kind of one reason to know going in, whether you're writing Hero's Journey or Heroine's Journey or Forex Tractor or whatever it is, because it gives you a better knowledge about your your eventual fan base and what readers you're going to be catering to. Because like you said, no book is for everyone. I mean, like I say, I don't like Stephen King. I've never read Stephen King that I liked. Like, I'm sorry. I know he's one of the biggest authors in the world, but for me, doesn't work. Not my ballywick, you know, and that's fine. He's doing very well (laughs) without without me loving Stephen King. Right. And that's because like even the biggest authors are not for everybody. Uh, And so as writers, we have to kind of come to terms with that super early and the better you get at identifying who your books are for um, and what it is that people find appealing about them, the, the better you, the, and longer of a career you'll have as a, as a writer in general. When you're planning your own books, do you like plan it really rigidly against the heroine's journey or do you treat it kind of loosely? I treat it very loosely and that, and you're absolutely right. Uh, some of the people I've encountered, there are very kind of rule bound characters, uh, char- personalities uh, in, I guess on the page, but also in real life. And I do say maybe not enough um, that it is just a kind of loose chassis, the heroine's journey and the hero's journey. You don't have to go through and hit every beat. In fact, if you did, it would probably come up, come off as like very old fashioned, whether it were the heroes or the heroine's journey. Um, although, you know, like I said, Wonder Woman hit every point of the hero's journey and it felt fresh and exciting to everybody. But yeah, I, I w- it isn't it isn't an outline. It is it is just a sort of loose set of guides and you can activate them out of order, too, which many people do. Um, and that's always how I've done it. I have never set out to just be like, well, I got heroin's journey. I got to hit everything. Even early on when all I had was having once learned about it in class, I was I was just writing what I was writing because that's what I wanted to see out in the world, um, which is sort of comforting found, found family is kind of my major, I would say, theme in all of my work. Um, and that's just because that's what I feel really lucky to have found in my life, but also kind of what I want more, what I wanted to read more of. And so that's what I was writing. And found family is pretty much, as long as it ends happily, is pretty much always a heroine's journey. And so I was sort of naturally activating it without really meaning to <laughs> yeah and then yeah. i was like writing it down and i was like all oh, right yeah i i do that oh right yeah i do that 
Yeah, I've certainly found when I read or watch stuff that adheres to formula way too rigidly. I can predict it way too much. And the only thing that keeps me going, like reading or watching it, is if I like the characters. Mm, Absolutely. Yeah. I have found like certain companies that pump out rom-com films do it very generically these days rather than putting a bit of something in it. Something in it. And that's... Also, that's the sort of market demographic as well. There's definitely different markets that are more comfortable with complete predictability than others. Um, some market, like obviously mystery markets for or whatever, want to be surprised, but they're still very formulaic about the structure of the mystery and where the clues are going to be dropped. And more importantly, the characters that are going to be involved, right? Like if it's a cozy, has to be an amateur, probably has some sort of fuzzy business, you know, like furry friendly business, like being a pet shop owner or baker or something, right? So like there are certainly themes that we associate with these things that are predictable in their way, but maybe not plot pace narratively predictable. And I would say almost all the commercial genres have that because that's what the readers are going for. That's what they're going to those genres. They're reading these things for. Um, but definitely like like <laughs> plot wise, some genres are, are more or less predictable than others. So a mystery, you better solve the mystery at the end of the book or the readers are going to be mad. A romance, they better be together at the end of the book <laughs> or the readers are going to be mad, right? You know these kind of default rules if you're going to be writing in that genre. Um, And you are welcome to attempt to buck them. But what happens is you just end up with really upset readers. So you just have to change your marketing around and market to a different audience. Don't upset the romance readers. Yeah, just don't. don't. There's nobody angrier because their expectations are, I would say, the firmest about what they want from those genres. And that has to do with churn and predictability and rapidity and quantity. And also they're all, they tend, they tend to be a lot more what we would call whale readers in romance than any other genre. So people who read 300 books a year kind of deal. So yeah, there's a, there's all that sort of stuff when you're, when it comes time to marketing. But um, I mean, I, I do believe you should absolutely, especially if you're early on in your career, career, write the book that you need to write to get it out of your system But just realize that that might be one of the 10,000 words that you're going to have to like put to bed for a while, write a couple more books, (laughs) come back to see if it's marketable. Because often, you know, our first couple of books are sort of processing what, what it is we like. And so we don't know the direction that it's going as yet. Or, or our own, we're not really confident in our own voices as authors and what chassis like we really gravitate to and enjoy or, or what foundation. Um, and so early books often are writers, you know, figuring all this stuff out. Yeah, and it's okay <laughs> to take the time to figure that stuff out and find the tropes that you enjoy exactly. and that your readers enjoy. And also that you can subvert in a way that works because that is yes. possible. And also your own voice. I mean, I, I talk about this quite a bit, but I wrote, unlike you, I really love world building. Again, I come out of archaeology, so I love like the complexities of culture in particular and material culture and all of these sorts of things. So I would do, write these just crazy epic fantasies full of all of this world building and culture conflict and da 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 da, da. Uh, Totally unsellable. Like I go back now and I'm like, this is, what was I thinking? And it just took me writing a bunch of short stories and writing a bunch of other stuff to realize that like the voice that I did that was commercially viable, but also that people really liked reading me is a little, is casual, is the sort of casual humorous off the cuff 
style of writing, which I also like, like I said, all of my books are found families. Most of my books are also comedies of manners in some form or another, because again, I like the comedy that comes out of conflict between character or culture. And that permeates all of my books. It took me a while to figure out that that's what people wanted me to write and what they wanted to read from me in my tonality. Um, that's actually one of the reasons I ended up indie publishing The Heroine's Journey is because I wanted to write that book also in that tone of voice, just to make it more accessible and easier for people to digest. I could very well have written it as extremely dry academic text. I do have that training. <laughs> and I did, I did talk actually with my agent about pitching it to a nonfiction house. And in the end, I decided that like my goal with this book is materially different from my goal with my fiction, which is this book, the nonfiction one, I just wanted to get the information out into the world, which is why I'm talking to you. Um, the fiction is my career, so I, I need to make a profit off of that. But the nonfiction, I was like, no, this is just information needs to get out there. Um, and under those circumstances, having a traditional publisher would have actually stymied that. And so I both wrote it and published it with an idea towards accessibility more than anything else. I, I really loved the writing style of Addict because that's what made me keep going because I was having a bit of a um, fibromyalgia flare up when I was reading it. And even though it was a nonfiction, it wasn't one where I felt like I had to take long breaks from it because it was written really academically. My brain wasn't switching off. My brain was going, no, I need to go back to this book. And that's then I great. was like, <laughs> and I was like quoting it to my friends saying, oh my God, this now, this all makes sense. Now this is why we like this. And that's <laughs> like I'm trying to Yay. work here can you like go away <laughs> I was just throwing information yeah. at them <laughs> Yay, that's so great yeah that's exactly I, I just so the print version at least the Amazon print version has just got it in a re-release as well because one of the other things I did with it is try to make it so that you don't have to read it cover to cover some people have but like you can just jump to the sections that are helpful that, that you think might be most helpful to you like I really did read it read it. I really did write it thinking about what I liked best about academic texts, <laughs> as well as trying to make it fun to read. Um, so hopefully, hopefully it hits both things so that it's actually useful. I, I don't know. I really like, if it's going to be nonfiction, it really should be useful as far as I'm, I, and, and, and readable. That, that yeah. was, I mean, what, that's one of the reasons I left academia in frustration. <laughs> I was like, yeah. but but I could write this article really well so that everyone would understand why it's so cool that the, you know, that Haram al-Rashid is using Greek prisoners of war in his pottery. Like, this is a whole story. And people would be like, no, we're not going to take it seriously if it's not unbelievably dry. Like, I think it's silly. <laughs> like, I'm reading a book at the moment on folklore. And it's got some really cool, slightly balmy things in it. And it's written academically and it's making, <sighs> it's not engaging my brain as much as it should. It's about ghosts. I should be enjoying it. You should this. be enjoying it. Yeah. I mean, this is why people like Mary Roach are so amazing is because they take something ostensibly quite dry and then just write them, write it well. And to me, like, again, writing it well is a value judgment, but to me, something being easy and fun to read is, is well-written um, and that's what I gravitate towards in both my nonfiction and my fiction, as opposed yeah. to something that's, I describe it as chewy and I will <laughs> read nonfiction, but like, I have to put it down, you know, like I'll read a couple paragraphs and I'll be like, okay, I don't yeah. Uh, go read a romance novel. <laughs> I stop trying to read those kind of books now because my brain just switches off. Like there are certain writing styles, my brain is like a hard no. 
Like, I can't read George R. R. Martin, for example, because my brain... It took me 14 months to read A Game of Thrones. That's how much my brain doesn't like George R. R. Martin. No, no offense to anyone who does enjoy his stuff or to George R. R. Martin himself. I'm sure he doesn't care what I think. But, like, <laughs> that's just not my writing style. I need a faster pace and I need something... I don't know. But my brain just prefers different styles to that. You know? And your brain changes. Like what mm. I had a tolerance for, you know, like I quite happily digest Tolkien when I was 12 years old. I can't, I can't read Tolkien now. <laughs> like, <laughs> I can't really read that. <laughs> I was like, oh no, that's, oh, where are we going? Why are we still in the woods? Um, yeah, I, I have certainly changed my attention span and kind of things I like and things I, and as a reader, I definitely also go through phases where I'll just be like, I'm going to read, you know, epic fantasy for a while and then i'll suddenly be like nope no i, I want i want political space operas <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> okay uh, okay brain um and that's another thing to kind of recognize about readers and our readers and reader bases and stuff like that is they also go through these sort of phases or what have you where they're just like no nah, your book is great but nah, i'm not i'm just not into it I, I need to read this other thing for a while um but 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 being like comfortable in the style that's kind of endemic to your genre is also you know really useful because then people are more likely to pick you up. <laughs> oh yeah, exactly. Um, we did an interview with romance author Lisa Vino uh, last year, and she said people something. I'm going to paraphrase this really badly, but it was something along the lines of people come for the tropes and they stay for your voice. Mm, agreed yeah 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 so Everybody they will come back to her. listen to that interview yeah. it sounds great <laughs> it's really good it's one of our most popular episodes actually and i think it was something about she has a book about billionaire werewolves but she makes a joke about toilet snakes and everyone quotes that line about toilet snakes to her yeah being eminently quotable is very useful uh i found this myself people are always like quoting my stuff and i'm like oh did i write that oh look at me being clever um but yeah it is it is that is absolutely true is, is, I mean, and this is speaking to their, there are definitely like sort of different camps and different styles of writers. So I don't mean to like dismiss anybody's like business approach or whatever, but like to, to paraphrase once more, I'm hybrid. So I come out of trad. I'm a relatively slow author by comparison to many. So like the most I can do is three, sometimes four projects a year. And that's like a novel, a novella, a book, something else, you know, some weird thing I've decided to try. <laughs> Um, so, you know, so I, I, I am a trad author in that I'm a relatively slow writer, so I can't m mass produce the way some romance authors are. And no, I also can't dictate I've tried and I'm not really great at it. So putting all that in place, when I, I say this, I do genuinely feel after 10 years as a full-time writer and, and mostly earning six figures a year or more, like what people stay for and what people will give me grace for and patience with is that voice. Like they know what my voice is. They know what my style is. And that voice is a whole package of these quotable things that I write the way I always have humor in all of my stuff, the breezy kind of style I write, even when I'm writing something that's set historically, um, this found family thing, they're always going to be heroine's journey. It's, it's like almost never do I kill any of my characters. They're always going to be comforting. I have realized over the years, while I have some romance readers, most of my readers are actually not romance readers, but I always have a romance thread in all of my stuff. And I think there's sort of all of these things that keep people coming back and keep people reading my stuff, even when I switch genres or because I do, like I do move around quite a bit. Um, and if I asked them, a lot of them would probably struggle to articulate all of this stuff. 
Um, but I've sort of osmosed it and put it together over the years, partly as a result of being very interested in sort of story structure and, and being like, well, why? Like you all read my weird alien cozy mystery on a space station. Like that's so out of character for me, but a bunch of people went and wrote it and I, I read it and I was like, that's great, but why? <laughs> you know, like, but why? And a lot of people read it and said, I read it because it was you. I don't normally read sci-fi. I don't normally like this kind of book, whatever that means. Um, but I love this one. And I was like, well, if you liked that one, have you read this author? <laughs> yeah, I got that when I moved into um, fantasy. Some of my, my um, arc readers came with me and they were like, I don't normally read this genre, but it's hitting all the buttons for me anyway, because it's still got the romance. It's still got the found family. It's still yep. got the same humor. It's yeah. still very English. And, but it's kind of like my first series on steroids because I lean more into things like the world building and the tension. And I feel like I'm a better plotter. So my plots are a little bit tighter than they were, you know, six years yeah. ago for obvious reasons, because it was six years ago. And so because of that, I think readers are picking up on that, which is always really nice to see. It, it absolutely is. I also think that readers in general, they are corners of readerdom that is that are very focused. But I think readers in general are a little bit more amorphous. Um, omnifers, um, OK, the word I am looking for is people who eat vegetables and meat uh, or animals omnivores, that thing. Um, <laughs> <laughs> writers always lose access to words. Um so there are more omnivore readers out there than we really give people credit for. Um, I listened to another a podcast called Reading Glasses, where they talk about having reading wheelhouses, um, which is like not necessary that there's a specific genre that you all read all the time. There are certainly genres you gravitate towards, but more that there are like themes or elements that tropes and archetypes that you just love seeing pop up. Like, uh, like I love a girl cross-dressing as a boy to subvert the patriarchy. And I will read that in sci-fi, fantasy, romance, I, b- historical romance, K-dramas. Like, if it comes up, I'll be there, right? Like, that's just a thing I love. It's in my reading wheelhouse. Um, and I think there are a lot, a lot, a lot of readers who are like that out there. Um, but there are also a lot of readers who are like, oh, this author, like, I just like their voice. Uh, they might not even know that that's what they're gravitating to, the term voice. Um, and they're just like, I'm just going to, it comes from them. I'll read them. <laughs> you know? yeah. um, and that's a career, like to bring it full circle is like from a writer perspective, if you are somebody who is a relatively slow producer, what you really need is an active fan base of like 10,000 loyal readers who just love your voice and that will allow you to be experimental and they're like my favorite uh, fan mail letters are i'll read anything you write and i'm like thank you you have given me a career <laughs> like that's it like that you cannot give an author a greater blessing than that yeah those or, kind of emails are lovely aren't they yes <laughs> or even i'll try everything you write and i'll keep trying it even if the most recent one isn't my thing <laughs> and i'm like Great. Uh, whatever works, just don't go away. <laughs> yeah. Going back to the heroine's journey, do you have a favorite use of it? Oh, that's such a hard question. I, I'm old. So a lot <laughs> of my like my callbacks are relatively old. There's a, a, a Patricia McKellick book called The Forgotten Beast of Eld, which is, which is kind of a heroine's journey, but it's about a very solitary heroine. But what she does is collect mythical animals. So that's kind of her found family. And it's all, it's kind of, 
it's this exploration of whether that collecting and holding um, magical creatures as your friends against their will, essentially, um, really counts as this, um, whether she should attempt to kind of live in the human world or stay in the mythical world. It's just a really, and it's a beautifully written book. It's very kind of slow and atmospheric for a modern audience. So be aware. It's what I call legend telling, which is it kind of feels like you're sitting around a campfire and being, it's not as intimate. It's not as deep POV-ish as a lot of modern readers like, but I still think it's just wonderful. So I, I would say that's one of them. Um, and I'm a huge, I was, I was raised with and, and love Tamara Pierce. She's one of my favorite authors. And I gravitated to Alana for a very long time, who is essentially a hero, but it kind of eventually has a heroine's journey. But I really love Kel now. And Kel, who is the main character of her um, Protector of the Small series, is a real classic heroine um, and also a leader. And I really just love, love watching that um, play out in, in that series as well. So those are ones I can pull off the top of my head <laughs> awesome just based on what you said then do you think it's possible for a hero's journey to become a heroine's journey or vice versa does it work or can it backfire it can backfire certainly if you're in kind of the wrong genre so to speak uh there are certainly genres like crime thrillers um where it's expected that the main character be a hero and behave like one and be on a hero's journey and and the audience would be pretty disappointed if they suddenly became a heroine um, similarly romance, like you, you can't write a romance novel. That's a hero, um, that, that ends up alone. It, it like, is contrary to the, to the <laughs> contract you have with your reader base, but there are other genres that straddle that mix things up quite a bit. Um, so like space opera, epic fantasy, like sort of these larger, more sprawling ones that have multiple point of views. You can have multiple different heroes and heroines in one series. And you can certainly do it with YA in particular. So a YA chassis mostly is a builder's Roman chassis or a coming of age chassis. And that can take either proving yourself and finding your place through action and, solid and solitary achievement, or it can be proving yourself and finding your place through friendship groups and other people. So YA in particular kind of can be many different, can be either or, or both in some cases. Um, and the, especially contemporary. Um, and the readers are kind of on board for the coming of age narrative. So their expectations around whether hero or heroine are much, much less form, well-formed. Um, if it's a way romance, of course, different, <laughs> different thing. So yeah, it does kind of depend on what, what genre. Um, but yes, and they're, and they're very, it's, it's very, like most things, it isn't binary. It's very amorphous and there are heroes showing up in heroines and how a hero and a heroine would interact when it's her journey versus his journey um that sort of a thing um heroines that enter a hero's journey are often uh, killed <laughs> but <laughs> so, they make great plot motivations if he falls <laughs> deeply in love with her and then she dies or betrays him um, but that's, that's a hero's journey for you so yeah so the, the, the it, it, like everything it, it's much less simplistic than i put it to help with understanding, it gets way more complicated and a lot of fun if you're writing. Uh, but you do have to be careful if you're writing in a genre where the expectations are more towards one journey over another, um, not to certainly not to twist it and make it the other journey at the last minute. Um, and if you write the whole thing as the quote unquote wrong journey for that genre, you will deal with market fallout from that. You know, either your readers would be very disappointed or they'll just be like, this is not what I expected. Uh, the cover led me to one thing. This, this isn't really like, I don't know why I hated this book so much, but I hated it. They hated it. Cause you know, 
it was billed wrong, right? Um, so yeah, you, you you do have to be careful of something that I call reader betrayal, which is um, that the readers come to your book with expectations no matter what. And um, then those expectations are dictated by the cover art, the cover blurb, your name, if you're an established brand, all of that sort of a thing. Uh, they cannot avoid those expectations. It's not, it's not something those expectations will be established in the first sentence if you gave them a completely blank book, right? Um, and so uh, satisfying those expectations is what makes it um, exciting for the readers. I mean, you mentioned this a little bit when you were talking about kind of reader surprise and that the and, and uh, predictability and that there are some audiences that really like very predictable things and some audiences that really prefer uh, to be a little bit more surprised by things. But there's also that fine line, which I really admire mystery writers in particular for, which is laying out plot and pace in such a way that the reader figures it out slightly before the main character does. And then the reader gets a sense of satisfaction along with it. Oh, that's magical. Um yeah, so that's the, the, and we who write very character driven stuff can do that with character too. So you can kind of write a character that like is maybe slightly unpredictable to your main character, but the reader kind of knows what's going on with them and what their motivation is. And so the reader can kind of know what the, that character is going to do. Um, so your, your main character can be surprised, but the reader is like, oh no, I knew that character was going to be that way. Uh, or you can redeem bad characters and surprise your readers through that kind of thing. So yeah, I, I always say that um, everything in commercial genre has a mystery element of some kind. It's just in fantasy, the mystery is about usually the magical system or learning more about the world. In sci-fi, the mystery is about the technology or the aliens or learning more about the universe. Um, so yeah, and yeah, there's always something in, in romance, the mystery is about learning more about the other character, learning more about the, the void in somebody's heart that needs to be filled by this other human or humans. And I imagine because it's more internal, that's probably what scares some people away from the genre as well, because you can't look at those external factors. It forces you almost to an element of self-reflection, especially if you can relate to the main character or the love interest and they say they're recently divorced and you divorced your partner for the same reason as that character yes. it can touch too close to home romance can be very dangerous um yeah I, I do think some of the disgust sometimes comes out of fear i mean what do we all want out of life in the end but to love and be loved and i think that's if you haven't had it if you struggle to get it then if you think you are not worthy of it, then love can become a very fearsome thing. And, and those of us who dabble in it or write mainly with those themes are dangerous to the psyche and the emotional well-being of some yes. readers. How very dare we explore emotions. <laughs> Going back to you and your reading habits then. <laughs> no pressure here. <laughs> no pressure here. <laughs> What's one book that changed your life? Well, I already talked about Tomorrow Pierce, but it is Tomorrow Pierce. And that is because she actually germanely changed my life in terms of my life life. So I, when I went, I always had, so, I grew up in a very small town. And so I had friends that were like friends by association because there were no other options. Um, when I went to high school, I um, met my friendship group, but I met my friendship group because I was in an English class with this girl who we both had read Tamar Pierce. And, and then it turned out we had both read a lot of stuff. Uh, and we just spent an entire 
lunchtime talking about all the books that we loved and the books we read. Uh, That is my best friend. She is still my best friend almost 35 years later. She was my beta reader for a really, really, really long time for obvious reasons. We like reading the same thing. She actually works in the publishing industry. And so uh, like, and that, that gave me my first like friendship group, my high school friendship group, who were friends because we loved the same things and were interested in the same things. We were all, they were all drama geeks. We would go to cosplay at sci-fi fantasy conventions and stuff like that. And so that book, just talking about Alana, (laughs) pretty much changed my life in terms of giving me my first friendship group and learning about what that means, um, which was my first sort of genuine taste of love that is not obligatory, love that is not filial, love that is that is mutual and shared. Yeah. So that's the book that changed my life. <laughs> that's really lovely. We've never had an answer like that before, and I love it. <laughs> We've genuinely never had one that fits the heroine's journey so well. Either. <laughs> I know it's funny, isn't it? Uh, but yeah, I, I, I swear it's all true too. Um, but yeah, Alana, the first adventure. Or, I mean, the whole series was out and completed by then, so you know it was really everything about that. But and then. Sorcerer and Cecilia. And then, yeah, we had our first letter game. I recommend any parents out there or even newer authors get together with another author and do a letter game. It is so much fun. Um, There's a book called Sorcerer and Cecilia out there, which is two well-known authors who did a letter game, but basically you write letters back and forth in character um, and you can set up the world and universe however you like. In this particular case, it's a gaslight fantasy story about two girls with magical abilities, one of which goes away to London to have a season and one of whom has to stay back home and then hijinks ensue. But yeah, it's a really fun way to sort of play with character and learn how to like really climb into a character voice and stuff like that. And it's a it's great for for you know kids, but also for also for adults. It's fun. Letter games are great. Yeah, it sounds fun. If our listeners want to find out more about you and your books, where can they go? Everything's at gailcarriger.com. And that is the uh, British spelling G-A-I-L and Carriger, like carriage, C-A-R-R-I-G-E-R. Um, yeah, but I'm pretty good on my SEO. So you can just type in Gail Carriger. Um, so yes, the heroine's journey, there's a whole page for it that includes all of like my resources and the schematics and all that sort of stuff. So you can go there and get all the extras for that book um and then it has all of my fiction and then also where i hang out on social media um which is not 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 many places these days but <laughs> yeah that all all my stuff is on the website so awesome thank oh, you there's so also much. resources i should i forget to mention this always but yes <laughs> i don't write about craft all that often but i have but i also have like recommended podcasts for writers and all that sort of stuff. So there's a resources tab on the website that includes stuff for newer authors and then kind of businessy more stuff for sort of authors sort of later on in their careers as well. So very handy. Thank you. And thank you so much for joining us as well. This has been really, really fun. Thank you so much for having me. It has been great. Really fun. If you enjoyed The Writer's Mindset, we'd be super grateful if you could leave us a rating or review on the podcast platform of your choice or a thumbs up if you're listening on YouTube. It really helps other writers find us so that we can help them achieve their wildest writing dreams too. And don't forget, if you'd like early access to our episodes, the chance to submit questions for our guests and listen to our new bonus series, Healthy Habits, come join us over on Patreon at patreon.com forward slash writers mindset we've got a lot of big things planned but we can't do them without your support every little thing helps whether it's a rating a review or becoming a patron 
We'll see you next time and keep writing. <laughs>